All right, what a fitting close to our Lord's Day, and that's a hymn I haven't heard in a long time, but it expresses the life of faith that we want to live. When you're stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, because as you rest your heart on God, you find, as He promised, that there will be and is indeed not only here and now, but ultimately perfect peace and rest. So taste of it here and now. But we yet do not know all that God has planned for us. Take your Bibles and before we head to Revelation, look with me at 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to take you to two passages before we get to this final message in the book of Revelation, the letter of the angel from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Thyatira. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just by way of introduction, it is, it is a wonder that throughout Scripture, God gives us um, certain images and, and things to look forward to, and maybe basic frameworks of promises that are ours to be had in Christ Jesus. And then there are statements in the Scriptures that tell us that, that if you try to imagine it too far, if you try to push too far, you're going to, you're going to cross a boundary. You won't be able to see what, what can't be seen until we get there. In other words, you, you can't go beyond the, the revelation barrier that God has given. And with regard to our future, there are wonderful places in Scripture that remind us of that reality. That there are descriptions of what is to come, and we'll see that. But there are also aspects to our future that have never even been imagined. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he says that he and the apostles are speaking wisdom based upon what was given to them by the illumination of the Spirit in the power of God. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, he says, we do speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood who he was, if they'd believed it, if they'd seen the implications, they would know he is the king of glory and he is the one who will rule over all souls, including the judgment of those who don't believe in him. Had they known this, they wouldn't have crucified him. But just as it is written, verse 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is, a, this is an Old Testament motif from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64 and 65, and it is quoted here as a reminder to us that when God is consulted as to the things which are predestined before the ages for our glory or to our glory, there's a line up to which you can go. There are things that we will see in the revelation that tell us a bit about what's to come. But it is also true that we must stay our heart upon Jehovah and be content there so that our heart is fully blessed because we will find, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. We will find it. We will know it. And real faith doesn't try to push past any barrier, particularly where the line is drawn here. There are things eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and it's not even entered into the heart of man what God has fully prepared for those that love him. I love that. It's humbling. 
It's humbling to find a line that the Lord draws in the revelatory sand, as it were. Look now with me at the book of Hebrews for a moment, chapter 11, and you find that there were the same dynamics at work in the saints of old. Hebrews chapter 11, you remember this is a discussion of Old Testament patriarchs and saints and other believers all through the ages who, who followed God, professed Christ, they professed the one to come, they loved the one to come, and they were individuals of whom the world was indeed not worthy, the text says, because they lived by faith, trusting in these promises that had not entered into the heart of man, nor could they have imagined. They still believed, and that is mentioned here. All of these, verse 13 of chapter 11, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance... They know it's yet future. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This isn't where we live. This isn't what is yet to come. This isn't what we hope in. Whatever your best life can be now, that certainly pales compared to what God says has never entered into the imagination of man all that he's prepared. And so real faith waits. Real faith looks to that. Real faith confesses that we're strangers and exiles here. Verse 14, for those who say such things, they make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, but if indeed they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Look, they're not thinking of an earthly country. They want a home. They're longing for a home. We gather together as a people who long for a home, but this isn't it. We long for our ultimate residence. This isn't it. We know there's something that eye has not seen and ears not heard. This isn't it. And had we been believing in something here, well, when we go out to do whatever we do in life, we would automatically return as if this were the promised land, as if where we grew up and our roots were all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is it. If they'd been thinking that way, the writer says, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, verse 16, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And of course, that includes us, if you move to the end of the chapter, verse 39, all these, having gained approval through their faith... They didn't even receive what was promised yet because God had provided something better for you and me. More generations of believers, more to be saved, a longer period of grace so that apart from us, they wouldn't yet realize the full kingdom promise because God was saving us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thrilled that he chose you before the foundation of the world to be a part of what your imagination cannot drum up and waited then and these who endured what they endured, just believed God and believed God and went home to be with God. They never really realized the kingdom yet because God was still giving the kingdom to yet more souls whom hadn't yet been born and now have been born and here we are and we're saved so that we will join them in this wonderful place we cannot imagine. Well, this is what, as you know, is promised to the believer who overcomes. Back to Revelation chapter 2 
We've been looking at this rather lengthy letter to the church of Thyatira. And I said to you last time that when you get to the the part here at the end of the letter where he says what I want you to do, what I want believers to do, he then makes a promise. He says, I'm going to place no other burden on you than this focused pathway, this focused plan that says you're going to stay away from idolatry and stay away from immorality. I want you to hold fast to those things until I come, verse 25. Hold it fast, grab it, attain it, protect it, fiercely guard it. And and of course, in that then comes this great promise. He who does then overcome. For how long? Verse 25, until I come, until Christ returns, until the kingdom comes in, until he gets on his throne, until the mystery is no longer a mystery, and what is hidden is made plain until that which has not entered into our imagination isn't imagination anymore. It's reality. To him who overcomes till then, and he who keeps my deeds to the end. Notice he says, to him I will give authority over the nations. We saw last time endurance, perseverance. This is why we're here. And what an encouragement it was to just pour over Scripture after Scripture and and think about the wonderful purposes of God in empowering us to endure. We can endure. We're promised that the Lord will preserve. What a great grace that every day we get up, no matter what is ahead of us, the Lord is preserving us. What a great grace that he's empowered me to persevere so that, as I said this morning, you don't have to live in defeat. You can persevere. You can overcome. You will overwhelmingly conquer in Christ Jesus who loves you and against whose love nothing can come. This is the great promise given to the believer. Persevere. And there are rewards of this endurance. There are rewards. You hold on to humility and purity, you flee idolatry and sensuality, and then there is this pledge given to the believer. And we saw last time that the pledge is first a pledge to prevail. You can overcome. But then that moves immediately to this next great reward of endurance, and that is the power to reign. I introduced it to you last time. The power to reign. This is staggering. We will be given authority over the nations and reign with Christ. This is absolutely staggering. And in fact, there are Old Testament ideas and motifs that get collected into such a promise. I want to take you to a few of those. Look for a moment at the Psalms, at Psalm 149. Psalm 149, and you begin to see this wonderful theme Unfold not only in the prophets, but even in the Psalter of Israel. As Israel is called upon to praise God in their songbook, in Psalm 149, there are references here to this very promise. Notice verse 5 Let the godly ones exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and the two-edged sword in their hand. Two-edged sword. 
Back to Revelation for a moment before we completely leave Psalm 149. Notice verse 27 of chapter 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. We're going to be given authority to rule with Christ, to reign with Christ, and there shall be a kind of ruling that is oversight, protection, and even chastisement or judgment as we'll see. And with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. Again, another reference to a different psalm, the second psalm. Now back to Psalm 149. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. What must that have been like for Israel to sing that? That they will be with the Lord as his godly ones. This is a reference, of course, to the second coming of Christ. When he comes to set up his kingdom, his people who've been caught up prior to that to be with him, 1 Thessalonians 4 indicates, all of us, during the time of the Gentiles who are caught up to be with him, we then return with him and he comes as the nations are gathered against him. And he comes to rule and as he comes to rule, we are set to the beginning of that with him and he sets up his kingdom and there you have us ruling with him and the nations are gathered at that point in front of him and there we are reigning with him. And there's all of this language of the kings being chained and the nobles with fetters of iron. This is the language of the second coming and the battle that ensues, which is very brief, and the Lord utterly dominates. And you see that near the end of the book of Revelation. But we are with him. We are with him. Look at the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60. Isaiah, chapter 60, nearing the end of Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 14 of the 60th chapter of Isaiah. This is, of course, the glory that is in the final rule of Christ. And here you have this wonderful discussion. Let's let's back up to verse 10. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you and in my favor I've had compassion on you. Your gates will be opened continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. And the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Here it is, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. All those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Look at the language. You have the nations that are coming to Jerusalem. You have the nations that are put into service for God and God's people are ruling with him in this wonderful setting up of the glorious kingdom. This is referred to as well by Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 7. And we will, of course, revisit Daniel many times in our study of Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 7, you have this great night vision, and you have the Son of Man coming 
And he is, of course, presented before the Ancient of Days. And verse 14 of Daniel 7, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now look down at verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Look down at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So again, God's people are given vice regency and authority to rule and reign as the kingdom is set up and as the kingdom ensues. This is the earthly kingdom, the intermediate kingdom, the millennial kingdom. After the great battle of Armageddon and Christ sets up his kingdom, we have come back with him, we will reign with him, and then for a thousand years we are reigning. And we'll talk about the characteristics of that in a moment. The disciples were even told that because they had followed Jesus, Matthew's gospel records that Jesus told them that in the regeneration, in the parousia, in the appearing, in Christ's return, they would sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice the authority of that kind of language. You go back now to Revelation and this letter to the church at Thyatira, and Jesus says to the believer, to him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them, he'll rule them with a rod of iron. A quote from Psalm 2. This is very, very important language, and, and even though, as I said to you last time, there is some debate as to whether he means rule in just the judgment sense, or whether the translation that is forwarded into the New Testament, which has the word shepherd, which is the word for to come alongside and to care for, whether the debate continues to ensue, it seems to me that both concepts by the context are indicated. It is a kind of shepherding to say to the nations, you will be righteous and you will honor the son as he's on the throne and you will honor his people and you will bring your spoil into the kingdom and to the throne of Jerusalem. And if you don't, he will hem you in. He may even chasten and ultimately judge. And as I said, we'll see about that in a little while. So there is authority here. It's almost a, a word-for-word quotation from Psalm 2.9. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll shatter them like pottery. But in the other text, or the Septuagint, it seems to borrow its verb from, from sort of a different, a different word, or a word that seemed to be a different vocalization. And so you have there the idea that he shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. Well, that's true. Indeed, that is a, a part of this dynamic. But the language here is threatening. It's threatening terminology. Rod of iron, shatter, break them, broken to pieces. So it probably pictures the idea of a shepherd who oversees his flock. This is the great shepherd, the good shepherd on his throne, and he has the authority to protect his sheep at all costs, and he has the authority to chasten and judge those who would go against the righteousness of the kingdom. 
By the way, this reappears in the book of Revelation in this vision that John gets. Look at chapter 12. You see this same thing in the 12th chapter where there is a bit of a telescopic view, really, of perhaps the entire work that is given here in this vision. But chapter 12, verse 5, she, the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He's to rule them with a rod of iron. It appears again in chapter 19, verse 15, in the glorious victory and Christ setting up his kingdom. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. We come with him. We're part of the armies of heaven. We are with him with the authority given to us by him to rule and reign. And he is doing his shepherding and his shepherding includes the the oversight and even perhaps the chastening of those who refuse. Now back to the second chapter, this is an amazing statement coming on the heels of this great promise. Jesus says that you as a people who overcome will be given authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That is to say we will rule on his behalf as well as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And here's this phrase, as I also have received authority from my father. So here you have this same idea that appears throughout the scriptures. The father has bestowed all authority on the Son, and the Son's people who overcome reign and rule with Him, and He delegates that responsibility to reign and rule to His people. This is, by the way, what those who walked by faith were looking toward. They were looking toward a heavenly home. They were not concerned with earthly authority here, or earthly power here, or earthly economics here, or the power to empirically reign here. Earthly things were minor, minuscule, temporary. They serve that. Earthly interaction with the open market is for gospel interest. It isn't for attaching yourself to these things. Whatever you do, whether you do it eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God and do it all giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ. And why? Because this isn't where we're attached. We do it all for his glory. That's exactly what they did. They did it for a coming authority, a coming reign, a coming rule. Do you know why we struggle with that? We just don't actually robustly believe that it's coming. This was the whole point of Hebrews 11. They waited, they hoped in, they were looking toward a better country, a heavenly one. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm waiting for that. Yes, but how are you waiting? Are you waiting in strength and faith or are you waiting in discouragement, defeat, and doubt? Jesus says, if you overcome, it's because you do believe that you will be given authority over the nations. That's all he says. He doesn't have to prove it. He just says it. I will give him authority over the nations, just as I have received authority from my Father. One commentator said, the basis of our participation in the messianic victory is our participation in his messianic power. We're going to be given a place to rule. It is not about our power. It's about his. I read to you last time, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We're going to judge the world. That's absolutely staggering. We will judge angels, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That should influence the way we think about our life here and now. If we endure, we will reign with him, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will reign with him. Now, having then promised this future place, what is it going to be like? 
If he is ruling and reigning, what is it going to be like? And I, I, I couldn't finish this letter without just sort of doing a little excursus here to think about this wonderful kingdom. And we will revisit this idea again and again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There are plenty of passages we won't get to tonight. But just a few things to say about this rule and this reign with Christ. It's interesting that the promise says we will have this authority, this vice authority, and we will rule as Christ rules. And it seems that this shepherding role is going to involve in that thousand-year millennial kingdom, it's going to involve some rebuking and chastening of nations, and we'll see what the prophets say about that in a moment. And it is also the same sort of chain of authority that comes from the Father to the Son. So we will, we will do it on behalf of our great King and Master who sits on the throne, and we will be a part of His kingdom, doing His bidding, serving Him wonderfully, and it will all be that we are part of the link back to God's rule over the earth. That alone ought to energize the believer. But what will we be doing? And what will the characteristics of the kingdom be like? Well, here are some features of the kingdom that I just want to mention to you. Chapter 5 gives us a glimpse of this wonderful dynamic. The first feature of the millennial kingdom is service to God. Service to God. Notice that verse 10 of chapter 5 says that you, that is to say the Lord, has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Christ himself, the one who is worthy, the one to whom we are singing, the one slain who's purchased for God with his blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, he is the one who has made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. Now that tells us some things. That tells us that we are appointed by God to reign. Everyone across the globe will know that we are God's children. We are part of the kingdom, saved by grace in Christ. He's on the throne. We are appointed by Christ to reign. He has made us to be this kingdom. And he says we are kingdom and priests to our God. So we are in service of the king. And I might add that the language here is deliberate. We are priests, so it is a service to Christ for the sake of his glory and the glory of the grace of what he's doing in saving. And he will indeed continue to save, as we'll see in a moment. So in this first feature of the millennial kingdom, we have been appointed by God as vice regents of the king to serve, and our service is a priestly work. It's a mediatorial work. We represent him to the globe. We represent his grace, his kingdom. And by the way, it's an actual kingdom on earth. We will reign upon the earth. So the first feature, very simply, is that it is a kingdom of service to God, priestly service, mediatorial service. We represent him. We do his bidding. You say, but what is that going to be? Well, it's going to be anything and everything, but some of it hasn't entered into the mind or imagination. We'll see in a moment that, that the globe does change a bit, more than a bit. Marvelous things happen as the curse is reversed, but gloriously, we're given to service and we're appointed as his priests and we reign upon the earth. We rule, we oversee, we travel the globe 
doing Christ's glorious bidding. We represent him. Every person we talk to, everyone in the empire, everyone across the globe, every nation, every king of every nation, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, we go out as his people, just as many of them do, and we represent Christ to the nations and to the people of the globe and the kingdom. The second feature is that Jesus is on David's throne in the kingdom. In fact, Matthew 19, 28 says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And this is, of course, grounded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17, when God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish it forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In Matthew's gospel as well, chapter 25, verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He will take his place on David's throne And he will reign as the king of kings from that throne which God his father gave to him and said, I will establish it forever. Now in the millennial kingdom, of course, there are some who come out of the battle and they go into the millennial kingdom. They don't come back with us, with the Lord. And so they are just as they were. And yet the kingdom is filled with righteousness. Christ is on the throne. As we'll see in a moment, Satan is, of course, bound, Revelation 20. Evil is not allowed to reign. Righteousness reigns. But it is also true that it is a thousand years long. And so there will be the proliferation of people in these nations. There will still be nations. And they are having generations after them. And of course, as you know, at the end of the thousand years, you see what happens. There is a final ensuing of evil where all the final onslaught that could be collected is collected when Satan is released. He gathers and amasses this very, very meager attempt. It's big and huge in his mind, but it is meager to the Lord. An attempt to overthrow and all evil is finally dealt with and he is thrown where he belongs forever and ever. And then comes the eternal state. But prior to that, there is this amassing of generations of people in the kingdom while Christ is on the throne. And when he is on the throne, there will be some nations, according to the prophets, who will say that they worship Christ in Jerusalem, but they actually do not. You say, is that really true? It is. Look with me at the prophet Zechariah for a moment. The prophet Zechariah, nearing the end of the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah, in the end of this great burden that he shares, you have this great description of this setting up of the kingdom and what Jesus Christ does in response to the nations over whom he rules and over whom his people rule with him. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one of that. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Zechariah 
People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse. Oh, don't you love that? There will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now when Christ does come and he touches down on the Mount of Olives, so say the scriptures, and his holy angels with him and the armies of his saints with him, that's us. When he touches down on the Mount of Olives and the topographical changes occur, there is an army amassed against him. And as they make war, Zechariah describes what happens to them. It's very graphic, verse 12. And this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So the army's livestock and livelihood and their own soldiers and every person in them, this is the plague. They rot in their place they are standing. Verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, as the kingdom is set up, they will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You remember that wonderful feast that, that reminded Israel that when God brought them out of bondage, uh, he took care of them. And so they would tabernacle in these little homes and they would get rid of all the, the luxuries of life to remember how God met their needs. And each year, nations and peoples will go up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And verse 17, it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King. You say, how can that be? Well, you have a thousand-year millennial kingdom. You have generations coming after those that enter the kingdom. And as those come... Satan is, of course, bound. There is no way to proliferate evil at that level. Jesus is on his throne. And yet there are some who feign worship. And when they're called upon to go to Jerusalem and enjoy the grace of a righteous throne and a righteous king with a righteous kingdom of priests serving him, when they know that grace and they refuse to go up, the Lord of hosts says there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What are they not celebrating? They're not celebrating the Lord's grace in rescue. They're not celebrating the Lord's sustenance. They believe now that as a people somewhere out there, as a family, as an estate, as generations are coming, that they can sustain themselves. And that's why they refuse to go up and worship at that particular feast because that particular feast reminds us of the sustenance of the Lord. They're going to be chastened. 
We will reign with Christ on the earth, and a feature of the millennial kingdom is that we render service to God. Jesus is on David's throne, and as he's on the throne, he is mediating his rule throughout the globe, and there will even be at some stage in the millennial kingdom some families who smile and say they worship Jesus, but they don't really worship him, and when it comes to actually celebrating his sustaining grace, they won't do it, and suddenly they will find out just how powerful the Lord is to chasten them. And I love this, verse 20, in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Jesus is on David's throne. He is ruling. Some people have thought, well, what? This, is, this makes no sense. If Jesus is on the throne, then righteousness reigns and there is no sin. Really? Jesus is the Lord of glory sitting at the right hand of the Father now and there is sin. There are seasons where God allows these things for his greater purposes to save some and punish others. That will even happen in the millennial kingdom. But a millennial kingdom has to happen as the book of Revelation will teach us because a millennial earthly kingdom is the fulfillment promised by the prophets. When God fulfills promises, he upholds his faithfulness and proves to us that he never lies. Jesus is on his throne as a feature of this great kingdom to come. Thirdly, and amazingly, another feature of the kingdom is that saving grace is extravagantly bestowed. While chastening is going on, saving grace is extravagantly bestowed. Look at Psalm 22. As we're moving ahead here, we're probably going to have to speed up a little bit, but here you have in Psalm 22 and verse 27 and 28. Notice, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Look at that. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. There will be some pockets of families that get chastened in the kingdom. And they will, of course, perhaps spawn some unbelievers who, when we reach the end of the thousand years and Satan is released, they are the final ones who try to come against God and end up being judged. But even in the midst of that, the psalmist can say and have Israel sing it, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. This, of course, is a reference to the saving grace that is occurring through that time and then of course, takes us into the wonderful eternal state when every family of all the globe is a worshiper of God purely and no more sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 4. As Isaiah opens up this prophecy, he talks about this branch of the Lord. In that day, verse 2, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. 
And when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, and then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. I love that. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. There is this great saving grace. The filth is washed away from the daughters of Zion, purging of the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. And the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies this great protection, this canopy of glory. Extravagant grace bestowed as God dispenses it upon the earth. During that reign, as I said, there will be some who feign worship, but they're never able to, to be completely bound in some sort of insurrection against Christ until the end of the thousand years. And there is at least one important reason, probably the most important reason, and that is Christ on the throne, the second reason of which is the judgment of Satan. Another feature of the millennial kingdom is that Satan will be bound, and you see that in the 20th chapter of Revelation. Satan will be bound for the thousand years. If you want probably one of the finest treatments of that chapter, uh, Dr. Matt Waymeyer, who's on our pastoral staff, has written a little book on the 20th chapter of Revelation. And it is an exceptional book, and of course is uh, at least an excerpted work that found its way into his newest work, which examines whether there's an actual 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And he makes, obviously, the the case that the church has been making since the apostles and since the early church, that there is indeed a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, a literal thousand-year reign, during which Satan is bound. And that is told to us in chapter 20. Verse 1 of Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Here is Christ coming. The battle of Armageddon ensues. He wipes those out, as Zechariah 14 said, and those who are left go into the the kingdom. There's about a 75-day period, if you calculate the prophetic numbers, uh, where there's a cleanup of the battle of Armageddon. There are bodies everywhere, stacked high, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, as this army was amassed against Christ. They're all killed, and as you, if you read the earlier chapters in that battle, you note that God calls all the birds of the air from all over the globe to come eat the supper of God while the millennial kingdom is set up. And it's during that time that the dragon, the serpent of old, is bound for this thousand years. He's thrown into the abyss, verse 3, and it is shut and sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So during the thousand years, he's unable to deceive the nations. What does that mean? No global uh, sort of national empirical uh, false teaching that rises up and deceives people. It doesn't mean that people aren't deceived enough to say, I'm going to feign worship to Christ and end up getting chastened and judged. But it does mean that global evil at the level Satan schemes today and his hierarchy of demons are able to, uh, to enact and empower today, none of that will happen as it does today. 
He's not going to deceive the nations any longer in that way until the thousand years are completed. Verse 4, I saw thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was given to them. There's that reference again to the apostles and the 12 thrones and then those of us who are with Christ reigning in the kingdom. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life. It was resurrection and they reigned with Christ for this thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed This is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection of those unto life to reign with Christ. There will be a final resurrection unto judgment and ultimate death. And so there you have verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is absolutely marvelous. What a feature of the kingdom. As we reign with Christ, Satan, in all of his global hierarchy and scheming, will be silenced, finished, bound, chained. And Christ will reign from his throne and we with him. But the features of the kingdom that most of us, if we read the Old Testament at all, are most fascinated with are the the features regarding universal peace and blessing. Those features regarding universal peace and blessing. It is mentioned, of course, in the prophet Isaiah as chapter 9 tells us that there will be this one who comes. Isaiah chapter 9. And this one who comes, there will be features of this wonderful kingdom that are absolutely remarkable. Isaiah 9, verse 5, every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And here's the government. The government rests squarely on his shoulders. And he will be the one who is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is, of course, the eternal father. That is to say, he is equal with the father and rules as the father rules. He is the prince of peace. There's no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end to the peace that he brings. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it. And look at this, with justice and righteousness. Any case brought before him. Not a case where necessarily people uh, are, are deadlocked in some satanic battle, for Satan is bound. But anyone who needs justice... This isn't a reference to to some court of law where lawyers come to Christ and make a case. This is a reference to the fact that all who need justice will be given justice. All who need protection will be given it. All who need equity will be given equity. All who, who experienced in this life being downtrodden will find righteousness and equitability and a judge of fairness ruling with wisdom. He is the counselor. From then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see it also in chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. What? And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. You moms don't have to worry about your six-year-old leading these that used to be predators, the whole... The whole curse is going to be reversed in the animal world. 
and the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Oh, it just gives you chills, doesn't it? You people who hate snakes. Your kids are going to be toying around with them in the millennial kingdom, and you won't have any problem with it. Why? Because the curse is reversed. The cobra will not have its same disposition. You will know it is peaceful. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. You see the same thing in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, you see the prophet speaking of this same time again. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom, verse 1, like the crocus. It'll blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you, and the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arava. Everything is reversed, disease ended. Organic problems and maimings turned, overturned, the land itself breaking forth where there once was the scorching Death Valley. Verse 7, the scorched land will become a pool, thirsty ground, springs of water, in the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes, and a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way. Fools will not wander of it. The lion will be there, nor will any, no lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In chapter 55, you see it again, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And so as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word which goes forth from my mouth. It's not going to return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And you're going to go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills are going to break forth into shouts of joy before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. If you go just a few chapters over to chapter 65, you see this wonderful motif. Actually, quite shocking, verse 17, for behold, I create this new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. This is again speaking of God's ultimate plan for not only the millennial kingdom, but all that stretches out into eternity. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. 
Notice verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100. Here now we're back to the millennial kingdom where death still exists. In the eternal state, death does not exist. But here it even exists. But the youth will die at age 100. Look, if somebody dies at 100 years old, it's youth. It's young. It's bizarre. And one who does not reach the age of 100 will, thought that, will be thought to to have come upon some chastening from the Lord that took him, some curse. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. No more bondage from other nations. Everyone serves God's people and God's kingdom. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will labor not in vain or bear children for calamity for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Don't you love that? It goes on again to talk about no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. The prophet Hosea speaks of it in chapter 2. Joel speaks of it in chapter 3. Amos speaks of it in chapter 9. Micah in chapter 4. Zephaniah in chapter 3. And Zechariah chapter 9. And as I read in chapter 14. On and on it goes that there will be this universal peace and blessing to those who reign with Christ. Well, let's return to this great promise in Revelation chapter 2 and we're done. It's absolutely staggering that we are given authority in that kingdom to rule with Christ on his behalf and to move about the great globe and see the reverse of the curse and glory in it and worship Christ on his throne. In verse 28, here's the second promise, and I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Who's that? According to Revelation twenty-two sixteen, this is, of course, a parallel to what is said there. It is Christ himself. There's a lot of debate on that, but there's no debate needed. Essentially, though, though there are some interesting arguments otherwise, it seems to me quite important here that John puts this at the beginning and the same name at the end. This is Christ. I will give you Christ. And when I think about that phrase, I think about the target the target isn't merely the wonders of the kingdom. It's not entered into the mind of man all that God has prepared. I, I can't even fathom it, of course, and it excites my heart to imagine that it's beyond my imagination. But even beyond that, here's the promise for those who overcome. I get Christ. Will you be able to talk with Christ any day, any time? Any day, any time, all the time. Will you be with Christ all the time? Yes. Say, how can that be when there's so many myriad upon myriad of saints in the kingdom? I don't know. <laughs> Do you? It's not entered into my imagination how that works. But we're going to be around each other. Seems that we can probably move at the speed of thought as Jesus did in his glorified body. I don't know. Text doesn't say, but it hasn't entered into my imagination. But I can at least imagine that if I'm ruling with Christ and I'm given the morning star, he's mine. I possess the morning star. It's Christ. I need access to my Lord and Master. I'm going to be with him. And so will you. And it won't be a crowd. We won't be crowded out. I love that. I'm going to be given the morning star, Christ as my possession, the Savior. He is ours and we are his. 
And so, beloved, these are the features of the kingdom which we will see unfold again and again, even as this great vision unfolds. You say, when is that going to happen? Well, not until a great and terrifying time of trouble. All through the Old Testament prophets, all through the discourses of Jesus, including Matthew 24 and 25, and all through the book of Revelation, it is very, very clear that that time cannot come. Christ will not touch down in the earth until a time of great and terrifying tribulation such as the world has never seen. And this is why every church, including Thyatira, was given a letter, and then this is what is said at the end of the letter. If you have ears to hear, listen up and believe it. Because a time of great and terrifying tribulation will come. And this kingdom, this great kingdom in which we rule with Christ, will not come until then. By the time we get to chapter 6, and we go from chapter 6 to chapter 18, 19, you're going to see this great and terrifying tribulation unfold from both Old Testament texts, Jesus' own discourses, and then the book of Revelation in this great vision itself. I want the kingdom. I want to be with Christ. I want to see the curse reversed, and I want to see this universal peace and blessing with the government on his shoulders. It won't happen until this great and terrifying tribulation comes. And that will be when we finish the study of the churches. That will be for our study at that time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message. And as we begin to pray for the, those who will be leaving us to, to help with the continent of Africa, as we call them forward and as we pray for them and as they go to help another place with another people, another tribe, another tongue, we're reminded again that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and, and your salvation spans the oceans so that we're brought together and so we can minister to one another. And one day, we will cover those miles at the speed of thought, as it were. We will cover those miles freely and in liberty and in righteousness as your righteous kingdom covers the globe. But for now, those brothers and sisters serve there in Malawi and they serve there faithfully and they minister on our behalf because we support their work and, and yet they pray for us and support our work in that way. And, and then we cross-pollinate with these wonderful teams whom we want to pray for and come around. So, Lord, thank you for a global picture of the kingdom and until then, we, we have glimpses of this great kingdom work as we get with others from other nations and we serve for the gospel. So may we rejoice to wait on that future kingdom and endure and overcome. And in the meantime, strengthen one another's faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.